Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Professor Scott Veach about his latest book, Obligations, New Trajectories in Law, which was published by Routledge in 2021. I just want to tell you a little bit about our guest, Professor Veach, today. He's the Paul K.C. Chong Professor in Jurisprudence in the Department of Law at the University of Hong Kong. He was educated in Scotland and has worked at universities in Australia and the UK and was formerly Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of Glasgow. Now, he's also held visiting academic positions in South Africa, New Zealand, Belgium, France, and the Basque Country. His area of research is jurisprudence, broadly defined, and his work draws on historical, philosophical, and sociological insights into law and legal institutions. Now, I first got to know Scott at HKU when he was the Associate Dean for Postgraduate Research, and then also in HKU's Legal Theory Reading Group, um, which he runs. So I'm especially excited to be able to have him on the show today to talk about his book, Obligations, New Trajectories in Law. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jane. It's a pleasure to be here. The pleasure's all mine, really. Now, just to get us started, can you tell me perhaps a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Obligations, New Trajectories in Law? Sure. Well, as you said from the bio, uh, I've worked in a few different places uh, around the world and different universities, uh, which has been one of the, the privileges of this kind of work. Um, but more specifically, coming to this book, I have for a number of years been uh, thinking about obligations and the work that uh, law does in binding people together, binding communities together, binding uh, groups and ideas and so on together. Uh, and it seemed to me that uh, obligations hadn't been explored sufficiently uh, as a as a particular mechanism they were they were observed from the outside as an area of law uh, the law of obligations uh, or they were thought about as reasons for actions but it seemed to me there was something else that needed uh, uh, exploration and so I wanted to delve into uh, uh, more depth about uh, what obligations were and what work they did so that's the background, really, just a curiosity, an intellectual curiosity as to what uh, work obligations do in modern societies. And now the title of the book hints at its sort of contents in this argument, and you sort of like hinted at this already. So why do you describe obligations as new trajectories in law? Well, in fact, that is the name of the series. The subtitle is the name of the series in which the book uh, is placed. So... Uh, the, there, there are a range of uh, um, titles in this series that just started by a couple of friends of mine, one who's a commissioning editor at Routledge, Colin Perrin, uh, and the other, Adam Geary, who's a professor of law at uh, Birkbeck in London. Uh, and they wanted short introductions to uh, themes in law from a more critical perspective, so not just the usual uh, way of presenting uh, whatever area of legal analysis, but uh, a, a sort of new 
a new take on them. And so hence the subtitle, New Trajectories in Law, was a new way of thinking uh, about uh, already established or conventional uh, areas of legal analysis. Now, I found that really interesting because, I mean, a lot of the work and the research that I do and lots of people do is sort of um, about rights rather than obligations. And you write that in legal discourse, rights have come to overshadow the work done by obligations. For example, you write that we have courts of human rights, not courts of human obligations. Can you speak to the implications on this emphasis on rights and conversely, whether obligations are necessarily correlative? Okay, thanks. This is a big question. So in in conventional legal theory, rights and obligations are seen as a correlative. Famously, for for uh, uh, the work the work in, in jurisprudence, there's a, a, a writer called uh, Hofelt who set out the correlative tables for rights, obligations, powers, privileges, duties, liabilities, and so on. Now, it seemed to me that whilst it is undoubtedly the case that uh, there is a correlation in legal terms in, in modern law between rights and obligations. Uh, there are two important things to say about that, or two important perspectives that one can put this in. Historically, it was just simply not the case that uh, rights and obligations were always correlative. Why not? Because uh, rights were a late invention. So whilst uh, historically there had uh, always been, as far as we know, uh, a sense of obligation that uh, existed within communities and polities and so on, uh, rights were a later uh, invention of the Western mind uh, at some point in the first half of the second millennium. So in that very obvious sense, rights and obligations hadn't always been correlative because obligations didn't have rights to correlate to. The other thing about the overshadowing, I think uh, we can take a different perspective on that. And I think the, the, it is indeed correct to say that we live in an age of rights where rights have come to predominate in the legal, political, social imaginary. Um, however, um, if they are indeed correlative, why is it that we focus on rights, courts of human rights, human rights violations and so on, if they are equally uh, tracked by obligations, surely there's something of interest here that we just tend to focus on the rights rather than the obligations. Um, So in this book, it was an attempt to chart why it is that we might focus on rights rather than uh, obligations and to attempt to rebalance uh, our picture uh, that corresponded in some way more accurately to Uh, the claim about uh, correlation. So then I guess my next question is, what what is the work that obligations do? Mm -hmm. Well, it it seems to me that obligations have a primacy, uh, a priority here that rights don't have. Uh, And part of the reason for that is that uh, obligations form an important part of the texture of social, personal, political lives in a way that rights don't, so that we uh, find ourselves in obligatory situations uh, daily. We often don't uh, articulate them as such um, in a way that we don't find ourselves dealing with rights 
daily in the same respect. So I think um, obligations then have uh, that kind of priority uh, that, again, needed examination, because if we just tend to focus on rights, we uh, miss out uh, some of that work. So what the book does is to go through and look at the different areas within which obligations work, and they don't always work in the same way in different areas. So, and this may, maybe to anticipate uh, another question that you have, um, wouldn't a focus on obligations devalue the work that rights can do uh, and the important work that rights do? Okay, so the work that the work the work that obligations do then uh, varies across uh, different areas of social life, um, and sometimes they can be positive things, and sometimes they can be negative. Um, but the 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 point of the book is to is as the chapters uh, develop, is to look at the work that they do in different areas of social and political life, and then to turn to the work that they do. Uh, in legal institutions and look at the specific effects uh, that the operation of obligations have. Um, and then, so we've got, you know, some activists and lawyers might sort of argue that, you know, the work that rights actually do um, and the rights are not well enough protected as they are. So now does your sort of shift in emphasis, do you think, towards obligation devalue the work of rights and the work that rights do? Yeah, it's, that's a good question. Um, I'm very clear at the start that uh, I don't want it to seem that I uh, fall uh, foul of that criticism, that by emphasising obligations, we lose sight of rights. Uh, I have a quote from Margaret Davis, the Australian uh, legal philosopher, uh, saying it tends to be those who take their rights for granted uh, that are overly critical of rights. And I think the point here is that uh, certainly for many activists uh, trying to get governments to behave in ways that respect rights, then to devalue rights is a dangerous thing. So there's no sense in which I want to uh, devalue the possibility that the recognition of rights has. It is undoubtedly part of the progressive uh, politics of the, the 20th and 21st century, but getting recognition of equal rights, whether it's for women or for children or, or whatever, has been a necessary aspect of improving uh, the life opportunities of many, many people. So by focusing on obligations, I don't want to negate any of that uh, work or any of these possibilities. However, that said, later on in the book, what I suggest is that when one pushes rights to do uh, the work that they can do, even in these progressive senses, the really hard work is then to get the obligations working. So it's one thing to get equal rights uh, uh, recognized by a legislative enactment or by a court even, but the really hard work comes when you have to decide who has the obligations to respect the needs that uh, are covered by this right and who is going to resource it, who or which bodies are going to resource it. These are the tougher questions. So, so rights are important, yes, 
in some sense, they're a trigger for uh, even harder work to be done uh, by obligations, by assigning obligations and resources to support uh, the rights that have then been recognized. So that's the way in which I, I would like to address the question of rights and uh, the progressive nature of rights. When this sort of when rights go through this triggering process, say in the courts um, or protected by legislation, then you know can you answer to whose responsibility is it to sort of um, provide resources to um, by obligations to make sure the rights are realized? Do you... Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think there you you can do a certain amount of work in the abstract there, but then you have to actually talk about which particular rights uh, that um, you want to address. So the abstract point, I think, is well made by Jeremy Waldron, the legal philosopher uh, at NYU, who says that with each right, there are what he calls waves of duties, waves of duties. So Imagine the image here is of a pebble dropping in the in a pond, and there are ripples. And these ripples, in this analogy, are obligations. So he gives a good example. He says, when we've got the right, for example, the right to freedom of expression, uh, or or freedom of association or demonstration, public demonstration, um, you might think, well, that right, all that right requires is is allowing people to walk down the street with their placards and so on. And he says, well, no, actually, when you think about it, there are other obligations that uh, come into effect in order to make that right uh, meaningful. For example, there might need to be police to protect uh, the protesters against uh, violence from other people. They might, you might need to train people up in. Uh, how to respect or how to deal with uh, these kinds of uh, the exercise of particular kinds of rights. So the point here is that um, even in the abstract, one right can produce many more obligations. Uh, uh, that and we tend to miss that when we just think of the rights as uh, singularly correlative. But the second point I think is 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 more significant. So the question of distribution of resources. So, for example, if you acknowledge that there is a right to health or a right to health care, that's one thing. The question of who has obligations under or, or in response to that right is a very wide. There are many waves of duties, you might say, attached to uh, any individual's right to health care. Obligations on doctors, on nurses, on bureaucracies, on governments to uh, resource these and so on. And that's where I think the really hard work of law uh, and, and politics and policy comes in, uh, is, is how to deliver on these obligations in a way that makes that single right uh, meaningful. So that's the, that's the compass of uh, the law in the sense of the breadth of uh, activity that is required in order to make rights meaningful. That's really interesting. And you you wrote about how obligations historically and contemporaneously have this sort of primacy in social institutions and relations. Um, And one of the really interesting examples that you give um, was in relation to language and how obligations make it work. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, they, they, this, this is an interesting one. I, it, it's not an original point to me, but, but the, the way in which uh, writers have uh, 
uh, analyzed uh, linguistic practices are such that when, when people learn how to communicate with each other, they do, through, do so through uh, learning uh, rules of communication, often uh, uh, not articulated in these ways, um, that mean that uh, they understand that particular words mean things, particular sentences or phrases mean things, uh, and that in order to communicate successfully, they are bound by certain linguistic or grammatical rules. Now, that's one aspect of it, and I don't think that's uh, particularly controversial. But the other thing is what comes with this, and here I take it from the work of uh, Neil McCormick, is that there are certain other uh, values or even virtues uh, that come with linguistic communication to which we are also bound when we think about uh, linguistic practices. For example, truth, truthfulness as a virtue and as a value is something that we learn. So it's not just that we're communicating, we're communicating something uh, as true. Um, if we are, you know, someone asks us, how do I get to the train station? You're not just uh, uh, communicating the information. There is a norm about uh, truth telling that is uh, implicit within this communicative uh, uh, discussion. Now, what's interesting about that is these also take the form of obligations. Um, and so it, it, it's not to say that everyone always tells the truth. Of course they don't. Lies are prevalent too. But in order to lie, you have to know that, uh, that someone is taking it as true and you're deliberately mis-deceiving mis uh, uh, them. So, so there are certain norms or values built into linguistic uh, communication uh, that presuppose this binding quality uh, of obligations or obligatoriness uh, that are absolutely central to uh, successful communication. And I suppose the point there is that although we take so much of this for granted, but when we, when we scratch the surface like that, we see in that sense obligations have a primacy uh, that rights don't have. So we tend not to think of the, the linguistic practices as saturated with rights in the same way as we do uh, as, as they are, in fact, saturated with obligations. So that's the, that's, uh, the, the linguistic aspect, I think, Phil, uh, of the primacy of obligations. So in that sense, there seems to be um, not just linguistic rules, um, but the sort of normative substance to um, the obligations that underpin language um, as an example. Another really interesting explanation you gave in the book was relation to um, love in human relationships. So you reference Henry Frankfurt writing that obligations arise as part of what it means to be in and to value particular relationships in themselves. Those irresistible requirements of love thus form part of the dispositions, actions and effects that are constitutive of those relationships as they and we if we are fortunate, develop over time. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of obligations in relationships of love and friendship? Yes. The, uh, Harry Frankfurt's a lovely little essay on the mysteries mm -hmm. of love uh, that I came across talks about these irresistible requirements, which I think is, is just absolutely captures. They're requirements, but they're irresistible. And one of the senses in which they are irresistible is that they are indeed constitutive 
Uh, and I think this is an important thing. So obligations in this sense are constitutive of what it means to be uh, to be part of a particular relationship. So uh, examples of love, which could be uh, of different kinds uh, of of friendships. Friendships is a is is a, is a good one because, in a sense, that the obligations you you can't separate out the obligations and the friendship. Friendship just comes with certain kinds of obligations. Uh, and to be a good friend is to know how to respond to the kinds of obligations or duties that we have under these circumstances. And it seems to me, again, here's another good example where rights just seem uh, wrongly placed in these, in, these, uh, in these relationships. You know, so someone says, I have a right to such and such. I have a right to your friendship. Well, no, that's, you really don't understand what friendship is about if you see it in these terms. So obligations then are the, are the substrates, are, the, are the, the things that create uh, or, or, or are built into the very ideas of friendship uh, and love as well. Of course, there are many other uh, aspects to these relationships: the desire, or passion, or loyalty, and uh, all, many other virtues involved. But obligations seem central to them, particularly in a way that contrasts with the fact that rights are not. And that made me laugh just then when you said that. It made me think of um, my two littlest. Um, I've got a preschooler and a toddler, and I can just imagine them saying, "No, I have a right to this. I have a right to that. Like I have a right to friendship or a hug." And in fact, I think your illustration is really good because, you know, that sort of, we know we grow out of that sort of thing. We know it doesn't make sense intuitively. Um, and this is sort of the work of obligations. Um, and so I think you sort of point to my next question is that obligations and the construction are contextual. So you write about, and you've just spoken as well, that, you know, obligations are historically, socially, politically, and so on um, contextual. And they can actually be used for strategic ends. So can you explain what you mean when you wrote write in the book that the strategic deployment of obligations for uncommon ends may be far more prevalent both historically and today than is, in the, than is their emanation and embodiment in genuinely cooperative activities? Okay. So one of the, the temptations it seemed to me to avoid is that when one turns over to think of the priority and the work that obligations do, there might be a tendency to see these as a, almost in a kind of warm, collective, communal sense. That is indeed the case with certain kinds of obligations, such as the kind that we were just discussing, friendship or family. Uh, and these kinds of relationships are, we, we can see the positive work in a, in a collective and communal sense uh, that obligations can do there. But it would be wrong to say that that is uh, the best or only way to think about the work that obligations do. Obligations are, are strategically de deployed for uncommon ends in a way that suits those who have power or have strategic gains that they can they can achieve only through the deployment of obligations. So uh, typically, for example, in a workplace, you may have a, <clears throat> a collective goal, which is to produce, let's say, a particular service, supplying, I don't know, books or 
televisions or distributing whatever. Um, but the the commonality between the owner uh, of the factory or the workplace and those who work within it, the employees, is not at all a, a commonality that is the same as a friendship. There, there is a lack of inequality here. And obligations are, uh, there is a lack of equality, I'm sorry. Uh, and obligations are central to maintaining that unequal relationship. So the obligations of the workers are very thorough, very extensive, uh, and often very severe. And that contrasts with uh, the rights of the employer, uh, often, to uh, exploit the workers uh, for the employer's own ends. So we have an asymmetry here uh, of obligations that are necessary to understanding the operation of a workplace. Not all workplaces are necessarily like that, but certainly when one looks at the kind of society uh, that we live in now, uh, many large workplaces are indeed structured best through obligations uh, in ways that produce or uh, sustain an asymmetry uh, between uh, owners or employers and employees. And now just picking up on that point and sort of jumping ahead a little bit in the book, um, talking about obligations being asymmetric, you write um, that this is sort of, um, there's these asymmetric obligations, um, but in relation to work contracts, there's this sort of hybrid of obligations. So you write that the work contract operates like a legal gateway through which once entered, the worker becomes subjected to changeable workplace obligations that in fact govern almost all aspects of the material and intellectual labouring conditions in which their daily routine consists. Now, can you explain this a little further? Okay, so if we look at uh, the operation of rights and obligations in the workplace, and here I'm thinking of typically a, a larger uh, workplace, it could be a university, it could be a factory, um, something like that then the, uh, the rights and obligations are often established at the moment of contractual formation, the, the, the uh, contract of employment that the, the employee and the employer sign. Uh, it's not original to my own analysis to point out that that kind of formal equality that the employer and the employee have uh, at that point uh, is a bit of a myth. In other words, uh, the idea that the parties equally uh, consent to the terms of the contract uh, is, is simply uh, implausible, if not false. But to stop there isn't, uh, is to critique the legal position, but is not fully to understand the work relationship. Because subsequent to that uh, signing of the employment contract, the daily operation of the workplace uh, sees very little uh, of uh, rights work being done and much more of obligation work being done by the uh, employees. Now, the point that, that I, in order to, to deepen the analysis of how that happens, we have not only obligations, as I, as I put it here, but hybrids between these obligations and practices of obedience. And practices of obedience are different because they don't have the same normative structure as uh, obligations do. So if obligations uh, operate uh, as a way of um, 
uh, allowing the the person obliged to decide whether to do something or not, practices of obedience tend to, to reduce that area for freedom uh, uh, in ways that uh, can be deployed towards particular ends. Now, these ends may be good uh, or not, but the, the point here is that, that practices of obedience are such that they're much harder to break than a contractual obligation. The contractual obligation is easy to break. If you don't go to work when you're supposed to, you breach your contract. Practices of obedience in the workplace are much more difficult to break because they are ingrained in the daily habits of uh, the worker. Uh, and these operate at a different level uh, of uh, normative structure, agency, and so on, than do obligations. So when you have hybrids of obligation and practices of obedience, uh, you have a much more tightly bound uh, and structured uh, set of activities uh, and it seems to me that the workplace is one of the ways in which uh, one of the places in which we can see that happening. Um, by way of illustration two more of the sort of case studies that you present are of indebtedness and also um, property so maybe you could talk about those now. Sure, these are big topics. Let me let me just pick up on, on, on indebtedness um, because debt is uh, is one of the primary forms of obligation uh, of modern societies, particularly modern capitalist societies. Uh, and debt works in in a range of uh, different forms and different uh, for different purposes and so on. So money is a form of debt, so financial instruments, all these kinds of things uh, uh, that I, I, I briefly mentioned here. But I suppose what I'm interested in, in again, is the way in which indebtedness structures, and in asymmetrical ways, it structures a large part of people's lives in ways that don't often, uh, aren't often exposed in terms of legal analysis. Uh, so what I have in mind here, it, it, it could be something as uh, as straightforward as student debt. When so the idea that you, it, in order to have your right to education uh, fulfilled, uh, there are certain obligations on educational institutions and so on. But in those places where you have uh, uh, endemic student debt, what they are doing is in, inducing a culture of indebtedness to a particular form of uh, economic organization. So that if you come out of university and you have years worth of debt to pay off, then you are bound to work within a system that, that makes sure that you can do that. Uh, and so there's a whole structure of indebtedness control uh, uh, that operate here, uh, both in financial terms, in legal terms, but also in social and psychological terms that uh, bind people uh, to upholding certain forms of uh, economic organization. So again, we're looking not only at um, the, 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 the legal operation of debt, but what that means when we see the ripples of indebtedness uh, as ways of organizing and maintaining a particular economic structure. Yeah, and so sort of... Um... Just to bring that back to some of the earlier points, this sort of idea of the, you know, you talk seem to be talking about this sort of structure of asymmetries. Um, and there is this, you know, um, 
asymmetry and control and power um, which bind people in in their obligations. So just sort of stepping back a little bit to, um, to an earlier part of the book, you write about the place of obligations and modern antecedents to them. So you write that um, with relation to governments, that governments always claim simultaneous obligations and rights to rule, that obligations play a constitutive role in social relations generally, and the role that obligations play within schemes of legal thinking and practice. Can you speak more to these modern antecedents of obligations and how they proliferate now? Yes. The, the, there's a nice line, um, Samuel Moyne, who's a legal historian at uh, Harvard, uh, has written a couple of essays on, on duty uh, and legal duties. And here's this nice line that um, insofar as we do indeed live in an age of rights, uh, we are historical outliers. I think that's the phrase that he uses. In other words, um, much legal and political thought up until the modern era was structured with the, around the primacy of duty or obligation. Uh, and then into the modern era, uh, it, it, it shifts and, and rights become uh, prior. What interested me about that argument, and I think to some extent this is, it, it's true, um, but it's not the whole truth, and because it seems to be that, that what what occurs as we enter into the the modern era is that rights do indeed replace obligations as the language of authority, the the the, the language of primacy of of political uh, goals, but the practice itself has a continuity. The practice of obligations and the power and working of obligations has a continuity that belies the rhetorical shift from obligation to right. In other words, um, obligations go, as I say in the book, obligations go subterranean, but in doing so, they're still there and they're still doing a huge amount of the work uh, required uh, of organisation, structure, institutions, uh, of modern societies as well. It's just that the rhetoric uh, has shifted, has transformed them. So these antecedents are significant because they allow us to see uh, in the sort of early modern and the pre-modern era how it was that people thought about the primacy of uh, obligation. And I give a few examples from the 17th century. But it's, it's, it's also to follow uh, that hunch that there's a continuity uh, that, that maintains the structure of the early modern uh, and the primacy of obligations, but it but it changes its shape. It met, there's a metamorphosis, so that uh, so that people um, are talking more and more about rights, whilst the real work is still going on in terms of uh, obligations. And there's, in other words, there's a continuity uh, that uh, is significant as well. And I think when you're reading the book, you can see this continuity, as you just mentioned. You um, you know, some of the examples you give are from John Donne in the 1620s and then you write um, also about Scots law, but then bringing us sort of a little bit to more modern times, you write of the possibility of rights. Um, and then we see this sort of continuity when you write, what grounded human relations and their political and legal institutions when it's not some idea of a right to rights, as William Galbraith Miller wrote and later Hannah Arendt more famously described it, Instead, it is the priority of obligations that provides for the possibility of rights. What implications can be drawn from this? 
Well, I think when when you see it in these terms or, uh, that um, that you've just set out there, I think the the implications uh, are multiple. So one one set of implications uh, is tied to what we were discussing earlier, that um, around this waves of duty notion, that when when you you think about uh, rights we have to do the hard work of thinking about where these obligations lie and how they're going to be resourced. One of the contemporary uh, theorists who've written about this is Honora O'Neill, the English uh, uh, moral philosopher, uh, and has tied this very much into questions of uh, women's rights as well, uh, is that uh, the claiming and even the succeeding of rights uh, will be empty rhetoric, she says, unless it is backed up by the realities uh, of assigning and holding to account uh, institutions and powerful actors' obligations. So that's one aspect of, of, of it. I, I think the other aspect of, of rights being grounded in obligation goes to these various textured forms that I've described. So everything right through from the, the linguistic uh, groundwork that language does through to seeing that the, the how uh, workplaces, how markets for rent and labor and so on, how these, if these are indeed uh, all held together primarily by obligation rather than rights, it matters to realize that if you want to improve them, if you want to change them. So yes, we can grant more rights, but in fact, if rights are not doing the work of this hybrid form of the practice of obedience in factories or workplaces or whatever, uh, then you can change the rights, but you're not necessarily changing the practice. So if you want to improve uh, particular practices to reduce exploitation, to increase equality of opportunity, whatever it happens to be, then just focusing on the rights will not get you uh, the, the kind of, to the desirable end that you seek. You've got to focus on these more textured uh, and more practical and often indeed more humdrum uh, practices that actually uh, do the hard work of maintaining the structures of inequality. So in that sense, the right to rights is important. Rights are important, yes. Um, but you won't change the, the fabric of, of social inequality by, by only by focusing on the rights. It's, it's this uh, almost subterranean, uh, hidden from view, um, of the official rhetoric that we need to uh, pay more attention to. That's what I'm interested in here. Mm, and I think you can see this in the next chapter, this sort of idea about um, how the right to rights and this sort of this work that's being done behind the scenes. And part of this, I think, in your next chapter, we, chapter we sort of come to understand is where you write about the defining features of modernity is commonly taken to be the rise of the individual. And I can see um, sort of what you mean about this sort of subterranean work being done by obligations when we do have this primacy on um, the rise and the rights of the individual. Can you talk a bit more about the individual in the context of obligations? Yeah, so the, the, the one way of, of understanding the emergence of modernity is to see uh, the individual as a as a focal point for uh, political practice, for political rights, and so on. 
um, so that um, we are all individuals in a way that uh, is is not the case in the pre-modern or, or ancient forms of thinking about social organization. One of the most telling uh, uh, examples of that, or symptoms of that, you might say, is social contract theory. How do you uh, compose a political society starting with the individuals uh that that make it up so from hobbes and Locke and these guys uh we see that that's the problem you start with the individual how do you compose them how do you do that well for them contract was uh was the answer now uh that's just a device that was an intellectual device but it makes a difference whether you start with the individual or the collective now not all uh, modern political theories start with the individual but there is, I think, a dominant form that uh, individuals' rights have the, uh, are primacy. Uh, we think about the individual and his or her needs and uh, expectations and so on. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a standard account of uh, modern practices. But, but if, if, if we look at it in a different way, uh, what we would find again is that there are continuities that are missed out when we think of uh, individuals in these terms. And, and partly what I'm doing in the historical chapter, uh, looking at the 18th century, the, the, the post-social contract stuff, is to say that often as not, these theorists were either just simply ideological or they were lying. You know, the, the idea that all individuals are created equal was a lie. You know, that this idea that Jefferson put in the, in the Declaration of Independence, he knew to be false, right? So he had sla- he was a slave owner, you know, and individuals are not born equal. Um, they are already born with vast inequalities uh, structured into these social systems. So when we think about the primacy of the individual, we have to see it in part as part of the ideological uh, uh, structures that uh, modernity has uh, built up. What work does obligations do? Well, isn't it uh, curious that obligations fall asymmetrically on those who have least power, right? So slaves, women, children, they, ha- they have far more obligations than they have uh, rights when it's compared to the Thomas Jeffersons of the modern world. So in that sense, <clears throat> Um, obligations are a necessary component of, of structuring an inequality that nonetheless seeks to valorize itself uh, as individualistic. Yeah, and I found that idea really interesting. Um, this idea sort of that obligations actually reinforce inequalities and injustice. Um, and you, you give this really good historical account and then you give us some more modern examples um, in modern legal systems. Um where despite guarantees of equality, people have lived in varying degrees of forced inequality and indignity. So some of the really interesting examples that you brought out were, for example, apartheid South Africa, um, the fiction of terra nullius in Australia, and slavery in the US, as you've just mentioned. So can you talk a little bit more about the role of obligations in law in reinforcing these inequalities and injustice by systems of laws that actually guarantee equality for all? Sure. The the interesting... uh... One of the, the interesting intellectual ways of uh, understanding uh, not so much apartheid South Africa, let's say, uh, but democratic South Africa, I think benefits from uh, what I would call something like an obligations critique. 
And and the point is this: that in a sense, apartheid South Africa was quite clear in terms of its its distribution of rights was explicitly unequal. So whites had certain rights, blacks, colours uh, didn't, um, uh, and that that's very very clear uh, how that inequality is structured. When it comes to modern uh, democratic South Africa, post-apartheid South Africa, everyone has, at least in theory, exactly the same rights. There is no discrimination uh, in terms of uh, race, gender, and so on. And the, the, the South African constitution is often held up as a model of a progressive uh, contemporary constitution, and I think quite rightly so. What's curious, however, is that there's a deep continuity of inequality, uh, oppression, injustice, exclusion, uh, that doesn't map on at all to the equality of rights at the level of the Constitution. So I, I quote uh, uh, a very good uh, judge in, in South Africa, Evan Cameron, who was uh, a constitutional court judge, uh, and saying, you know, we do have the rule of law, we do have equality before the law, we have all these great principles, but we still live in a society of deep uh, inequality, of opportunity, uh, of uh, exploitation, and so on. Now, in, in one sense, he sees that... Uh, 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 as a problem between rhetoric and reality, I suppose that's one way of putting it. It seems to me that there must be indeed more to it than that. How can you have a great constitution uh, that allows all these uh, inequalities and exploitations and so on? There's, there seems to be something else going on here. And I suppose what, what I'm interested in there is the way in which... Uh, one can have a shift in the nature of rights and the expansion of, of uh, rights discourse, but but still have the deeply embedded structures that of obligation, obedience uh, that continue, and 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 I think by by trying to figure out uh, the the work that obligations and practices of obedience do there, we might get uh, some additional insight into the kinds of problems. Uh, or places like post-apartheid South Africa, and and possibly just possibly ways of different ways of thinking uh, about how to redress them. If if rights are not necessarily doing the work, well, maybe we should be concentrating more on the on the tougher questions that uh, obligations uh, re- require of us. And I think that was one of my favourite things about the book: this sort of um, theory of obligations that could be used universally to analyze all the you know sort of structural um injustices that we do face and inequalities you know that rights have have done a lot of work but they haven't seemed to solve a lot of the problems um so i could actually see when i was reading the book how you know your theories of obligations could be extended to apply um to other situations um in terms of as you said before you know this difficult question of resource allocation and these really hard questions that the law does deal with. Um, and then in this context, I also just want to ask you quickly, then you write about structural substitution. Can you tell me what structural substitution is? Sure. This, it, it's, a, it's a rather fancy term for something that uh, is, uh, is a rather grand uh, claim, but is, I think, quite an easy, an easy idea. And, and I think 
the, the structural substitution that I refer to here is that there is a structure uh, of, uh, in the West at least, of uh, religious dominance uh, that one finds in the natural law tradition up to probably around the 17th century where uh, obligations have a primacy uh, in terms of the religious cosmology. So obligations to God uh, as the grounding uh, uh, framework of um, uh, of these uh, Western societies that are, are uh, predominantly uh, organized through this religious cosmology and that, that transfers down into particular rights and obligations. Uh, but it's more this, this uh, cosmological idea. Insofar as we can see a secularization of modern societies, uh, then that religious cosmology disappears. And this, again, not, not original to me, I, I hope to do something original with it, but, but the idea that what comes to dominate is no longer a religious cosmology, but an economic cosmology. Uh, and there's a, a Har another Harvard uh, historian who's written, a, a, a theologian, in fact, who's written a, a very interesting book called The Market as God. Uh, and that just captures that substitution. So the substitution is that the, the primacy of obligations owed to this supernatural figure substitutes the market for God, right? So in, we have this notion of the divine economy, the economy that works according to its own logic, uh, the, the economy to which we owe obligations of work or indebtedness and so on. That's the, the nature of the structural substitution. So again, it's part of that uh, narrative that, that says, well, yes, rights come to the fore in terms of the rhetoric, but in reality, we are all bowing before uh, the god of the economy, the capitalist economy, obviously. Uh, so that's the, the nature of the structural substitution. It's such an evocative title, The Market as God. Um, I, I think sort of I, I want to turn now to the next uh, chapter of the book, which you write, uh, which is called The Ecolo Ecology of Obligations. Can you explain what the ecolo ecology of obligations are? Yeah, it's um, it, 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 ecology is taken from uh, studies of the natural world, this, this notion that... Um, uh, that that everything uh, uh, contributes to but is dependent upon uh, everything else. So the ways in which, I don't know, bees are dependent upon flowers uh, producing pollen that they then depend upon the bees in order to circulate and so on. So there's an interconnectedness uh, about ecology, a kind of reflexivity about ecology, uh, the, the natural world uh, that um, is a kind of, it seemed to me a nice image for the work that uh, obligations do. So when we transfer the image to obligations, what we find is that um, obligations rely on certain other social structures and expectations in, in order to, to do their work. You know? So institutions, <coughs> It could be banks, it could be legal institutions, it could be courts, whatever it happens to be. Um, uh, obligations work within these institutions. But they also, these institutions in turn, also rely upon obligations to do their work. So there's that interdependency. So the ecology of obligations is the, is the sort of network 
within which obligations uh, are are required um, uh, and that uh, institutions are dependent upon obligations to do the work. So that, that's the, the notion of ecology. It's this sort of interconnectedness. You can't just cut off arbitrarily. You know, so if you kill all the bees, other things will die off, other things, as we know. Uh, the ecology ecologies have got a fragile system. Um, but it's that sense of inter interdependency and uh, reflexivity uh, with respect to the work of obligations that I was wanting to capture with this metaphor of, of, of ecology. And I think you really do. Um, you know, you mentioned before we have um, obligations that, you know, these sort of feel-good sort of things like love and friendship. And ecology is this sort of lovely word. Um, but then you also give a sort of contrasting example of how the interconnectedness of obligations and how the internal structure of an obligation actually works. And I just want to quote um, Peter Burks, who you quote in the book, um, and you write, an obligation is a rope by which we are tied. Here I am with the rope around my neck. We must allow for the other end of the rope. You are holding that. I am under an obligation to you. The picture of this is of this rope between us and you are in control. The rope is around my neck, but in your hand. Can you talk a bit more about this image and how obligations work in this way? Yes. Uh, Peter, Peter Burks uh, would be well known to anyone who studied either Roman law or the law of obligations or unjust, unjustified enrichment. Uh, he was uh, a, a, a very influential and controversial scholar. And that, that quote is taken from some lectures uh, that were never published in his lifetime, but that he gave to students, including myself, when I was a student uh, 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 in Edinburgh in the 1980s. And he takes this, he, this is his introduction to Roman law, uh, and he's, he's looking at obligation. And he has this wonderful image uh, that about the rope tied around the neck. And, and, and what, what I found uh, wonderful about that image well, many things, but one is one is one is the fact that an obligation doesn't tie two people in the same way. We we tend to to think that obligations bind both parties, and and what that image points out is we know uh, both parties are connected, but not necessarily bound equally and or in the same way. And I, I think that's a, a, an important thing. And and the other thing that the the image captures this rope around the neck. Is that the the person who is bound is still free to move around? It's a bit like having a dog and a lead, perhaps. Uh, they're still free to move around. You still want them to move around. So, so obligations in, in one sense don't actually crush the people. So, so there's another image that circulates about obligations as being we'd be under an obligation, um, and that that suggests that we can't move. No, we can move, and in fact, the work of obligations often relies on the fact that we can and do indeed move and, and move freely but within the constraints of a certain uh, type of obligation so uh, i was very struck by this image that he uh, peter Burks takes from uh, roman law because i think it captures something uh, fascinating uh, about uh, the work that obligations do uh, and and specifically they do in law because it, it also struck me that debts uh, indebtedness uh, when we think of a rope around our neck that's often uh, a, a good image for the way in which uh, uh, debt controls our lives.
Yeah, it was really a uh, really interesting example um, and did provide such a good explanation. Um, sort of bringing all these points together, turning to the final chapter of the book, um, which is titled Obligations, Needs, Solidarities, Old and New Trajectories. We've, you know, we've talked a little about the work that rights have done and there's a lot of scholarship on the work that rights do in terms of protecting how people flourish um, and them having the opportunity to live out their concept of the best life. But I want to know now, what is the role that obligations play to contribute to the well-being of individuals and the communities in which they flourish? Well, one of the things that um, that I tried to do in that last chapter is <clears throat> using the work of uh, Simone Weil, the, the French uh, writer and activist in the, the earlier part of the 20th century, is to think uh, of obligations uh, less as correlative to rights, of course they are, in the way that we talked about earlier, but primarily uh, is there a connection to needs. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, that that seems to me both uh, normatively but also in explanatory terms, a uh, much more powerful way of thinking about uh, obligations as something that can do positive work. So... Uh, the examples that I give there connect up to some of the examples we were talking about earlier. So families, for example, talking about the needs of children, the needs of children to have food or shelter, but also the need for children to be educated, to have their curiosity uh, uh, provoked or met or addressed. All, all these um, uh, needs that that, uh, uh, that need to be met in order for children to to flourish into into adults and uh, you know curious and responsible adults, and the obligations there lie on on parents, on teachers, on other family members, family friends, and so on. And so, a very important part of the groundwork of societies is done through uh, the work of these obligations in responding to uh, children's needs. So. And that is often missed out of uh, legal and uh, moral thinking because people are just thinking about abstract rights bearers. What is a, what rights should we have or do we have? Um, but so much of the work of modern societies still relies upon these places of formative growth uh, that that indeed continue beyond childhood. So, so all of us working in a university say. Uh, Students quite clearly are reliant upon or depend upon or have needs to be fulfilled uh, that are met through the uh, obligations of teachers, of pastoral care, uh, of systems of resource again, and so on. So so to, to think about uh, needs uh, uh, as primary here uh, seemed to me to be uh, an important corrective to the idea that what we are talking about uh, always in terms of uh, improving people's life opportunities are rights. And so I draw on a few people there. Simone Weil is one of them, again, Honor O'Neill. Also, an early book by Michael Ignatieff called The Needs of Strangers uh, talks about the the primacy of uh, needs here. Um, So that's what I wanted to do. Again, I just wanted to to, uh, provoke people into thinking about Uh, about the the nature of modern society, not from the rights perspective, but from the perspective of obligations and and needs. Yeah, and I think that's really well captured. Um, You know, one way, as you sort of mentioned in thinking about this, is sort of like 
the obligations of parenting and care are not really captured necessarily in law. Um, it goes far beyond what we can capture in terms of um, needs go of children, go far beyond what can be captured in sort of rights um, in law. And then sort of you just mentioned this book, The Needs of Strangers, and I think this sort of links well to this point you make about obligations and solidarity. Now, perhaps it's a massive oversimplification, but there is this idea in philosophy and legal theory that by virtue of being members of the global community that we all have obligations to each other, that is to not unduly limit the rights of others to live out their own conception of the good life. Um, And so my question is, what do sort of the bonds and the obligations uh, what do obligation? What is the role of obligations in sort of bonds of solidarity? Can you talk more about this? Yeah, I, I think what I'm trying to get get at there is again, um, it's 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 capturing this uh, this idea of old and new trajectories. So new trajectories is where we might go with this this these kinds of ideas. How we might take these on uh, in ways of uh, trying to change practices that we find uh, abhorrent or unjustifiably unequal or exploitative and so on. But some of the old trajectories are important as well because they have a productive power uh, and capacity that ought not to be jettisoned entirely. And so one of these is thinking about solidarity, about the way in which uh, uh, collective um, uh, commitments uh, through solid, are best thought of as solidary uh, relationships. Uh, and, you know, there's an old tradition of that that might be brought forward too. When we think about it in the global context, I think this has at least two different kinds of uh, implications. One is that, that the solidarity uh, is that is commonly premised as prime, uh, even in, in modern times, even under conditions of globalization, is uh, is bound by national borders so that we have solidarity obligations of solidarity to our fellow citizens and that's that's the prime motivation of uh, welfare states uh, you know good things like welfare states let's say um, but when we think of global justice and there's a lot an awful lot talking written about global justice it may be that the solidarities here don't uh, transfer to other places uh in in totally symmetric ways so that the workers in bangladesh may have as much in common as the workers in a chinese factory as they do as a factory in in dundee scotland Mm. so solidarities then uh are are, you know are not just universal they 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 often have a, a universal component that is combined with uh a particularity as well and the particularity relates to what people have in common within the structures uh, uh, of the economy. And that doesn't track neatly either to national identity or citizenship, nor uh, to places within the workplace. So the worker uh, will have as much uh, in common in solidarity with other workers than they will do, uh, more so than they do with the, the owners or the uh, employers. So again, uh, it's it's to try and provoke, well, where do our obligations lie in these formations? Uh, and they lie unevenly, um, but there are, and there are also another kind of form of obligation is the obligation to say, no, this is not acceptable, right? So 
So I think there's a, a kind of politics to obligation that I'm hinting at in these uh, in that last chapter uh, that um, uh, that that can allow us again a way of thinking about uh, how to transform uh, injustices in a way that isn't it's it isn't exclusively reliant upon rights discourse. I think that's a really interesting point that um, you know the example you just gave about workers having um, solidarities with other workers in other countries and this sort of asymmetrical um, sort of rights and obligations in terms of say. Um, employer and employee Um, and that's not necessarily captured in sort of rights protection especially because you know different rights are protection protected in different legal systems and the difficulty of protecting rights across international borders so I think that's um, a really interesting example now just turning back sort of um, bring tying it all together I just want to um, turn back to ecology and obligations Um, So you write that the greatest dangers facing us today are all human-made and the severe and growing inequalities we currently face are largely resultant by global systems of production, consumption and distribution, which you argue then is protected by complex arrangements of property rights that are essentially working as they should be. And I think that was a really interesting point. Um, So how do obligations reinforce this sort of very dire situation and what should or could they be doing differently? Okay, so two quick points on that. One, one is is that uh, there's a lack of imagination that is tied up with, I think, the the dominant rights discourse. Again, I want to you know emphasise that I don't want to disavow the work that rights can do, but if we just think of addressing global warming in terms of rights then we are already limiting possibilities. One of the ways, ways in which we're limiting possibilities is that rights are so closely connected to propriety rights, property rights, protecting the rights of those who have most property to protect. Uh, then we are, uh, we are tying our feet together and trying to run uh, if we just focus on rights there. So a shift, again, in terms of needs, in terms of obligations or solidarity, just allows you to start at a different point. What are the needs of the of uh, the global community? The needs are, presumably, uh, to live in a safe environment. The needs are not primarily to protect the rights of those who have most property. Uh, so, so again, we think about commonality uh, of, of shared uh, needs, shared uh, goods, uh, goods in the sense of value, things that are of value. Uh, and then work to to delineate and, and allocate obligations on that basis rather than starting with an individualistic rights-based framework uh, and thinking, well, how can we uh, move things around uh, in that sense? So it's, it's a shift in, in uh, mentality. Another, I suggest, I think rather uh, cursingly at the end, we need, might need another form of structural substitution uh, that moves us on from our current uh, cosmology, uh, economic cosmology, to think about something else. And again, uh, there is fascinating work already uh, being done in in these respects that I uh, just hint at uh, towards the end. But it does seem to me to an um, important area for thinking about a new trajectory uh, of the work that obligations might be able to do. Hmm. Um... Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting point um, that sort of brings it all together. Now, Scott, I've taken up a lot of your time today. So just before you go, I'm wondering if you can tell me what you're working on now. 
Uh, something completely different. I am um, having just spent uh, well, well, uh, ten years in Hong Kong, uh, and still working there. Um, things have moved on uh, in a fascinating way in terms of the use of law to change uh, social and uh, political life. And so I am analysing the changes that have happened uh, in Hong Kong law and Hong Kong society in the last uh, couple of years. That sounds fascinating. Um, and when you finish that, I, sh- I hope that you're writing a book. Maybe we can have you back and we can talk about that again. Um, because it's a topic I'm very interested in as well. Um, so just before you go, yeah. just yeah, <laughs> we've t- I think we've talked a little bit about it um, in some of the legal theory reading groups, so it's been really interesting and I will very much look forward to reading that. Um, so just to bring it all together, I'm Jane Richards, the host of New Books in Law. I've been speaking with Professor Scott Beach about his latest book, Obligations, New Trajectories in Law, published by Rootledge in 2021. Scott Beach, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Jane.